Let's, uh, let me encourage you, open up to 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going back, we've spent a little more time with Elijah this morning, 1 Kings chapter 19, and our text for this morning begins reading in verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen. What are you doing here, Elijah? I reckon this is one of the most important questions in all of the Bible. Because think about it. Remember what came before in Elijah's story. We were hanging out with Elijah a couple couple months ago in our Elijah series. And then again last week in this prayer series. Remember what came before. Because in in 1 Kings chapter 18, we saw Elijah with this tremendous demonstration of God's power and God's sovereignty and God's might displayed on top of Mount Carmel. Where he called down fire from heaven. Where he prayed and a downpour, a deluge of rain downpoured on the city. Remember that? This has happened just, just, just right before. But now we find Elijah hiding and afraid. That's a question, I think. What are you doing here, Elijah? This is a question I think God asks all of us. If our following, in, in our following of Jesus, we will all likely at some point come to a similar position where we'll hear God say, what are you doing here, Craig? What are you doing here, Aaron? What are you doing here, Hannah? How do we get to where we are today and how does that inform where you might go next? This is the big question we'll be wrestling with today. But before we do, last Christmas, our family went over to spend a Christmas celebration with our extended fam- my extended family over in Queensland. So, you know, we were here for Christmas Eve, and then early on Christmas morning, we got up, you know, before God, and, um, you know, went to the airport and got one of those early morning flights to, to Australia, you know, we fly it over, over to Queensland and, um, on Christmas Day, and uh, we got there, and we, we were there with my um, with family, and we got there in time, you know, for, for the whole day and all the things, and, and uh, we were there celebrating Christmas with, with all my family, well, most of my family. See, I have three younger brothers who are all married with kids. One of my brothers lives in Melbourne and was unable to make it. So two of my brothers and all of their kids were there. So uh, my youngest brother, Mitch, and his family were there. He's got two girls. And then Jeff, my other brother, um, he was there with his five boys. Yeah, you heard me right. I have five nephews, all from the one family. 
And uh, they were all there. So we're all at my brother's house celebrating Christmas. Oh, my parents are there too, right? And you can imagine what it's like. I mean, they've all been up. It's Christmas Day, right? So they, they're much younger than our kids. You know, I'm the oldest, so our kids are kind of the oldest of all the grandkids and, um, and, and of all their cousins and whatnot. So they're all quite young, and so you know what it's like on Christmas Day. You, they've all been up since before God as well. And, um, and they've been, you know, going hard all day, going to church and doing all the things. They were with the other family at lunchtime, and now they're with us at dinner time. And so here we are at dinner time at the end of Christmas Day, and everyone's starting to feel a little scratchy, right? Everyone's getting a little tired, a little worn out. And so my dad's there trying to um, control the chaos a wee bit as he's, deli- you know, passing out all the presents from around the Christmas tree, you know, and, and whatnot. And, and everyone's trying to, like, patiently watch and observe and celebrate, you know, and, and rejoice with, see what everyone got, you know, and all that kind of thing. Trying to keep the thing moving, though, because there's a lot of people. You've got to get a lot of presents. You've got to get around, you know. And then we get to, di- to dinner afterwards. And we're sitting down, and, you know, kids are starting to lose it at this point, you know, like, my nephews are fighting with each other. There's lots of yelling. There's lot, you know, you, you, you know the scene, right? Typical Christmas at our family. I don't know what it's like for your family, but this is how it's going down. And I remember at some point pushing back from the table and amidst all the noise and all the chaos and all of that stuff, I remember just having this reflective moment of deep gratitude and just saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. See, the truth is for our family, we've, not always, we've, we've never really lived close to our extended family. There's been many Christmases that we've celebrated on our own or with other people away from family, where we've said to my brothers when they FaceTime us during the day and we get a little taste of the chaos in the back, background of the FaceTime you know, call, uh, you know, all the chaos, and they're like, it's crazy here, you're so glad you're not here, is what they would say. And we would kind of go, oh, we would give anything to be there, actually. And it was one of those moments where I just got to sit back and reflectively go, oh, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, that we get to be here. We get to be with my family, we get to celebrate, all of that stuff. And it was a holy moment of receiving deeply from the Lord. Now, the reason I'm sharing this story is because it was a moment of receiving deeply from God that doesn't fit into what we might typically call a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice, right? There was a moment where receiving from God that we can't quite categorize into our normal quiet time or devotions or whatever your preferred terminology might be for those times when you read Scripture and you pray to God, right? It was a moment where God met us, met me unexpectedly in the course of ordinary life, ordinary day. Now hold on to that thought. Because we're in the middle of this series, this is week three, as Hannah said, of this series called Praying Church, where um, I believe God's inviting us as a church family to raise the bar, raise the culture of prayer among us, both individually and as a church family, as we pray on our own and as we pray together with each other. And so the, the tool that's been helping guide us through this series has been learning the early church prayer rhythm. And we've adapted it to, we call it the well church prayer rhythm, which is in the morning, pray the Lord's Prayer. At midday, pray for the lost. And in the evening, pray gratitude. And our team's helpfully put together a prayer booklet. If you haven't grabbed one yet, they're still available on the table in the foyer on your way out. Uh, Alicia and the team did a great job of making this really accessible um, and just helping prompt you into this journey. And so we've been shaping that. So we did an intro week at Kashmir High School. Then last week, we delved into praying the midday prayer rhythm of praying for the lost. And next week, Hannah's going to actually bring the message on the morning prayer rhythm of praying the, the Lord's Prayer. But today, we're going to focus on praying 
uh, in the evening, the evening prayer of gratitude. And we're going a little bit out of order just because I know you're all really intelligent, smart people and you can handle it, right? So, uh, and, and as we've said throughout this whole series, I'm really indebted and grateful for Tyler Staten and his book, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. It's really shaped so much of this whole series that we've been living into. Um, so let me say, while I'm excited to bring this teaching today, Praying Gratitude in the Evening, let me say right from the outset, this is not a rhythm or, or lifestyle of prayer that I have nailed. Can I just say that? This is one that I'm kind of like, if I'm honest quite inconsistent with. I'm not as inconsistent. So my teaching this morning is coming more from a, I believe in this, I know this is good for us, this is a healthy thing, but it's coming honestly from more aspiration than it is lived reality. Is that okay? Can I just say that up front? Like, um, I'm learning, I'm living into this, hopefully like all of us together. But I'm excited to bring it because I think it's in learning a rhythm of consistently praying gratitude that we learn to recognize the presence and the activity of God in the ordinary and unexpected moments of our lives. It's by the simple habit, habit of praying gratitude in the evening that we learn to see through the eyes of the kingdom, which is always breaking in among us. This is what we're going, this is where we're going. But the whole journey starts with this question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Back to that lonely, exhausted prophet in hiding. Because gratitude begins when I can recognize God in my past. Look back with me at our teaching text in 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to read from the same place that we were reading earlier, in, in verse, picking up in verse 13. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant torn down your altars and put your prophets to death by the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. Just about everything Elijah says here is true except for one thing. It's just about everything. He says, you know, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. True. You know, uh, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. True. They've torn down your altars. True. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. True. I am the only one left. False. And now they're trying to kill me too. True. See, that's the only thing that's not true. He is not the only one left. If you flick back in the story, you'll see Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets of Yahweh, a hundred prophets of the Lord, and he had protected them by putting them in two caves, 50 in each, and caring for them, providing for their needs and all that kind of stuff. So it's not true that he's, on, that he's alone. There are actually a hundred others who have not bowed a knee to Baal. There are a hundred others who have not forsaken the way of the Lord. There are a hundred others who are still seeking and praying and following God. But on the other side of Elijah's huge breakthrough moment on Mount Carmel, he's afraid. And fear has everything to do with our sight, with our vision, because fear distorts our vision. Fear distorts our perception, our reality. I'm the only one left, he says. Elijah, I get that it might feel that way, but it's not true. It's fear. It's fear-distorting reality. So Elijah, for the moment at least, fear is standing much taller than promise. Fear either distorts reality or it reveals reality, depending on whether our fear is in the Lord or in any other source. 
See, when I'm afraid or of failure or afraid of being hurt or being alone, when I'm afraid of uh, the opposition, for a moment at least, stands taller than the promise, right? It's a distortion of reality. It's a deception or a warping or, uh, of my sight. And when we believe lies internally that distort our vision, we respond externally by grasping. Let's just leave this line up on the, on the screen for a little bit while we talk about how we see this, because this is the whole story of Genesis chapter 3, actually. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, this is where the serpent embodying Satan, uh, you know, deceives Adam and Eve, uh, you know, to believe a lie internally. The God who you've never, you've only ever known and experienced as loving is actually holding out on you is the lie that they're given, right? So what do they do? They grasp, they reach for the fruit. They, they reach and grasp for the fullest, freest kind of life uh, apart from God whom they have all of a sudden, suddenly begun to distrust. Uh, they reach for it by their own way, their own power, their own control. See, original sin at its root is kind of grasping for what we can only receive. And there's this inner condition that then gets outwardly expressed as grasping and it's commonly called today entitlement. A biblical definition for entitlement might sound like trying to take from God what we believe He owes us. And there's, see, there's a good desire at the core of entitlement. It's, it's, it's the desire for peace. Entitled people, they're really aiming at peace. That's what they want, right? What will give me peace? What will calm the restlessness that's within me? What will satisfy my discontent, at least temporarily? And so they're grasping for peace that I can never take but can only receive. And then I turn God's gift into my right. God, you owe me a full, fulfilled life, right? And we tend to say those things to God while defining exactly what that full, fulfilled life should look like, right, for me. And so entitled people usually end up disappointed, and that disappointment manifests itself in subtle anger. It might sound like this. I thought if I followed Jesus, I'd have a happy marriage. I thought if I'd only followed Jesus, I'd be sexually fulfilled, I thought if I followed Jesus, my dreams for His kingdom would have come to pass by now. I thought if I followed Jesus, my family of origin wounds and the generational chains that run through my family tree would be broken. I thought if I followed Jesus, I'd get a community who really knows me and supports me and, and, and helps me flourish. And without ever saying it out loud, I've lived with this assumption that God owes me and what I think God owes me hasn't happened yet. I was looking for peace, but what I got was restlessness, discontentment, and maybe even a subtle kind of anger that says, they don't get it. See, all the rest of them, they don't get it. Their lives have played out to some cute Christian little script, just as it's meant to, but God hasn't made it that easy on me. Entitlement is trying to take from God what we believe He owes us, turning His gifts into our rights, grasping for what we can only receive. But Jesus takes direct aim at this subtle curse of entitlement in one of his most puzzling or confusing teachings. This is from Luke chapter 17. Jesus says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? No. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, after that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Who likes this scripture verse right here? Anyone? 
<laughs> Anyone? I mean, we don't really like it, right? I mean, maybe, maybe if we're really honest, we, we don't necessarily even recognize Jesus in it, right? At least not at first. I mean, isn't He the God who, who, who is revealing the Master of all as a suffering servant? Isn't He the one who, in whose kingdom is the first shall be last? And yet, here He seems to be saying, no, 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 you're the servant, I'm the Master, feed me my supper first, and then maybe I'll take care of you. Oh, and don't expect me to thank you either, by the way. I mean, that's what Jesus seems to be saying, right? But what He's actually saying is, He's drawing, uh, he's drawing a distinction between what comes to us by right and what we can only receive as gift. You see, if all that we were given by the Master was what Jesus describes here in this passage, then we're living by our rights as part of His creation. But, but Jesus, when He talks about His kingdom, says it works differently. It works like this. He says, it will be good for those servants whose Master finds them watching when He comes. Truly, I tell you, He will dress Himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. What Jesus is saying is, I don't deal with you by rights. I deal with you by grace. And that's a thing you cannot grasp, you can only receive. We really do have a Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. So the enemy's only trick, don't miss this, the enemy's only trick to get your mind and my mind, to get our wires crossed about what comes to us by right and what comes to us by grace or by gift, the enemy's only trick is to use entitlement. Gratitude then is the weapon that we carry to fight one of the most subtle and one of the most dangerous thieves of the spiritual life, entitlement. Gratitude fights entitlement and gratitude begins in hindsight. What's the most frequent command in the Bible? Does anyone know? Do not fear. Do not fear. Interesting, isn't it? It's not love, serve, pray. It's not, it's not, it's not give. No, no, no. It's do not fear. And the second most frequent command following close behind it is remember. And I really think that these two are connected. Do not fear, but remember. They go hand in hand. See, fear has gotten the best of Elijah. He's lost reality. He's lost the plot of his own story. And so God poses a question, a question that invites him to remember. What are you doing here, Elijah? Remember the scenes of your life, the journey up to this point. Recall the one who has been with you at every step because in the long journey of the spiritual life, we have a tendency to forget and we tend to again and again and again lose the plot of our own redemption stories. So remember, and as you do, the fear that's paralyzing you in this spot, it's going to lose its grip. Its grip. Your distorted vision is going to be restored and you'll begin to see again. You know, it's often said that hindsight is twenty-twenty, which I don't think is exactly true, by the way, but, but hindsight is where we tend uh, to be able to see the moves of God in our lives most clearly. When we look back into our past, we can perceive God's presence in a way that's easier than when we look forward or maybe even when we look into the present moment in front of us. That's why gratitude, traditionally, prayed in the evening, uh, um, is, is prayed in the evening because gratitude prayed in the evening is a way of recognizing all the gifts the giver has given to us in the midst, in the slog, and the blur of the day that we've just lived. 
Gratitude is seeing the scenes of my day, the, the emotional frenzy or the long, slow grind of today and seeing all the gifts the giver by his presence has littered all along the way and saying, thank you. It sets the promise of God right next to our fear. It fights every subtle lie with gratitude. It restores our weary souls. It gives us the kind of peace that we cannot take but can only receive. And what, starts, and what always starts with looking back then results in a truer way of looking forward. Because gratitude practiced in hindsight results in gratitude practiced in foresight. So we recognize God in our past that we might secondly recognize God in our future. I once read an article about, um, you know, the singer Prince. Any Prince fans this morning? Anyone? You into Prince? Yeah, there's one or two there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, read, this, I read this article about Prince where he was describing his creative process. And, and whenever he was in writing mode, so long before he ever got in the studio and started recording any music and all that kind of stuff, when he was just trying to get the creative juices flowing, he would cut himself off from all other music. So every time he'd, be, he'd go in to write an album, he, he wouldn't listen to anything except his own creativity, the own kind of stuff emerging from himself. And that was the way that he guarded his own creativity, to make sure he wasn't mimicking another artist, but was producing something entirely original. See, and I found that really interesting, especially as a musician myself, because usually most musicians actually listen to everyone else's work in order to inspire your own creativity, right? But for Prince... Inspiration was guarded by, by, by guarding himself and his imagination from all that other work. He didn't draw inspiration from others. He listened intently to what was coming out of him in order to find inspiration. And I think praying gratitude is something kind of like that. See, praying gratitude is a form of listening to your life, to borrow a phrase from Frederick Beekner. See, by tuning our ear to the sound of our own lives, the tune that we are living to can grow into a masterpiece. See, we tend to think that, uh, that spiritual maturity comes from listening to everyone else's life, right? I mean, we, spiritual maturity is learned from listening to Jesus' life and the apostles through the scriptures, and it is. So, you know, spiritual maturity is listening to community, to the counsel of your life group around the living room, or around the table, you know, to the, to the broader community of saints through pastors and writers and thinkers and resources like books and sermons and podcasts, and, and it is that too. But in our modern West, we tend to consume lots and lots and lots of information as the agent to our spiritual maturity. And while that's good, I think an equally valid and good uh, agent of our own maturity is to listen to your own life. St. Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuit order, popularized a way of prayer called praying the examen or the prayer of examen. Ignatius was this wealthy Spanish socialite who was injured as a soldier in battle and ends up bedridden at his parents' home for nine months of recovery. Nine months so he's laying in bed, recovering with no prior theological training, no real kind of spiritual interest of his own. He lays in bed for nine months, get this, no Wi-Fi, no Netflix, you know, nothing to help distract him, you know, I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, nine months and there on his bed, he was forced into this pattern of examining his own thoughts and he began this practice of every evening talking back to God about the day that had just passed. And the prayer of examen or the examination of conscience became the central spiritual discipline of the Ignatian tradition to this day. And every tradition in church history, to be honest, has this unspoken kind of central spiritual practice. In the early church, it was the daily prayer rhythm 
that we've been talking about and unpacking throughout this series. In the broad tradition that we're part of today in our church uh, context, is it's various, variously referred to as the quiet time or your daily devotions, right? That individualized time of reading the scriptures and prayer, right? And in the Ignatian tradition, it's the prayer of examen, listening to my life with God at the end of each day. And the prayer of examen begins with gratitude. If you want to learn to perceive the presence of God, to walk with day by day, start by noticing all the gifts He's given you consciously and intentionally at the close of each day. See, gratitude in one sense is a way of making my whole life into a spiritual practice. Richard Foster defines spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices as a way of placing yourself where God can bless you. And that means that anything can be a spiritual practice. Reading God's Word, the Bible, and an aimless Saturday stroll, right? Solitary prayer and a good laugh with your mates. Contemplative silence in the morning and a glass of wine in the evening, right? Anything can be a spiritual practice, which then begs the question, what makes something a spiritual practice? And this is it. It's all about connecting the gift to the giver. Connecting the gift to the giver. And that tends to be a whole lot easier with things like scripture and prayer and silence. So I would say those things are essential. They're like, they're like the major food groups of a healthy diet, right? But when you pour a glass of wine on the Sabbath and you take that first sip and it reminds you of the feast that will never end when heaven and earth are rejoined as, as, as one when King Jesus returns, then that becomes like a spiritual practice. And when you walk slowly enough on a Saturday to notice the Creator everywhere that you've buzzed past every other day of the week, you know, both in the grime of the city and in the beauty and the serenity of the mountains, then that's a spiritual practice. Gratitude's sole purpose is this, connecting the gift to the giver. So all the gifts of my ordinary life get connected back to God, the giver. It's a way of reviewing my day, identifying the gifts and saying, I see you. I see you, God. I see you here and here and here and over here. And that only tells me that there's like a thousand or, or 10,000 other places that I haven't seen you. Thank you for walking with me through another day. See, gratitude is this practice of discovering my whole life as a place of encounter with God and my whole life as the place where God can bless me my whole life as a series of gifts connected back to the giver. And it's also a series of pains connected to the one who knows pain, the suffering servant. And it's precisely for that reason that Ronald Rollheiser puts it so bluntly and states, to be a saint is to be fueled by gratitude. Nothing more, nothing less. Gratitude is the basis of all holiness. It may be that the holiest person you know could likely be the most grateful person. If you add up all the different feasts and celebrations that God commands ancient Israel to observe through, it, through the Old Testament law, it adds up to, a, to, to be about a third of a calendar year. A third of a calendar year, right? They spent about a third of the calendar year feasting and celebrating. And that means that when God led Israel out of Egypt into freedom and He gave them a new law and said, here's how you live under a king and form a society that looks something like the kingdom of God, He made joy that high of a priority that it consumed a third of the year. Think about that. 
But what's the difference between those historic celebration practices that we read about on the pages of Scripture and your end-of-year work Christmas do coming up in a couple of months? It's connecting the gift to the giver. That's the difference. You see, it's written into those practices that ancient Israel observed through, through the prayers that were prayed and through the scriptures that were read and, and even through the courses of the meal and the feast that they came. The order in which those courses came was a connection back to God. Israel was a bunch of savants, really, when it came to connecting the gift to the giver. And ju- during the Jewish Passover feast, um, the feast of Passover, Israel traditionally sang a song called Dainu. Dainu. And Dainu is this Hebrew phrase that means it would have been enough. It would have been enough. I once heard another pastor translate it as, thank you God for overdoing it. So Dainu prayer sounds like this. God, lunch today would have been enough, but you gave me the resources and means to choose what I wanted to eat out of a series of options. Thank you God for overdoing it. And you know God, lunch of my choice today would have been enough but you created a whole world of flavor and culture and spice so that lunch today isn't just fuel, it's delicious. Thank you, God, for overdoing it. And lunch of my choice in a world of flavor and culture and spice would have been enough, but you also gave me a co-worker to sit across the table from, to listen to, but also to be seen and heard by. Thank you, God, for overdoing it. That's Dainu. That simple spiritual practice, it could take 30 seconds or 30 minutes and it will totally transform you over the course of time. Because when we can recognize God in hindsight today, we'll begin to build a future tomorrow on His promise, not on our fear. But the very best part, the choice fruit of the practice of gratitude is that it actually trains us to recognize God in the present, here and now. Frank Laubach was uh, an American intellectual turned missionary who took a position on the island of Mindanao in, in the Philippines. He was so, with the, and, and it was at the time it was so remote and dangerous that the closest place that his wife and child could safely live to him was nearly 1,500 kilometers north in a safer part of the country. And it was there in this remote village that he developed this life of quiet solitude that gave birth to this deep life of prayer. And prayer gave Laubach both a heart of hunger for God and a heart broken with compassion for his new neighbors. And he writes this, he says, What right then have I or any other person to come here and change the name of these people from Muslim to Christian unless I lead them to a life more full of God than they have now? Clearly, clearly, my job here is not to go to the town plaza and make proselytes. It is to live wrapped in God trembling to his thoughts, burning with his passion. And my loved one, that is the best gift you can give to your own town. So through prayer, Laubach felt this fresh call to what was called the silent billion, meaning the estimated one billion people who could neither read nor write during his lifetime. And he started a global literacy movement called Each One Teach One, 
And from that remote island in the Philippines, it then grew into over 100 nations and over 200 different languages. He eventually became such a sage that foreign governments would bring him in to solve national literacy crises in their own nations. He helped give countless millions of people the gift of an education. And to this day, he's the only Christian missionary in the history of the United States of America to be memorialized on a postage stamp. That's what he's known, widely known for. But he's also authored a series of letters during that first lonely, solitary year when he cultivated a deep life in prayer. It was later published under the title, Letters by a Modern Mystic, and allows us to walk with him through that defining year, exploring the unlikely soil where his life lived in the presence of God actually developed. His first letter opens this way. It says, I feel as I look back over the year, that it would have been impossible to have held much more without breaking with sheer joy. It was the lonesomest year, in some ways, the hardest year of my life, but the most gloriously full of voices from heaven. And that, as that defining year kind of progresses, and as you read through those letters, eventually you discover Laubach's great realization. He writes, I want them to know my discovery that any minute can be paradise, any place can be heaven, which really is the same discovery that the Apostle Paul makes when he's praying from a Philippian jail cell. It's the discovery of John exiled on the island of Patmos. It's the, it's the discovery of Jesus on, alone on a mountain and in a throng of a crowd and even on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's the discovery of Elijah, alone, depressed, and afraid in the wilderness, that any place can be paradise and that any minute can be a taste of heaven. Friends, that is the invitation of prayer. But when we stop or never start recognizing God in the course of our ordinary lives, we cease to recognize God altogether. This was the condition of the priests or the Pharisees during Jesus' time, right? They could readily recognize God on the pages of Scripture or during the formal gatherings in the temple, you know, but they could not see God in the course of their normal lives. They couldn't see God in the flesh as He sat at a dinner table where a sex worker washed His feet with her hair or as He celebrated when Levi the tax collector came to salvation in His house where He'd gathered or as some friends tore open a roof in order to get their friend down to the healer. They couldn't recognize God in the course of the ordinary because at the root of entitlement is the death of wonder. So then God shows up in their ordinary lives and instead of their eyes widening open in wonder, they narrow their eyes in suspicion. But it's not only the Pharisees, right? The same thing happened to the disciples. And if we're honest, it happens to us too, right? At the very end of Luke's gospel, the, the resurrected Jesus appears to a couple of disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus. And for these two, wonder has d died and fear has grown bigger than promise. So they're walking to another village, somewhere they can start over, somewhere that's removed from their failed promises and their big fears. And Jesus walks beside them, walks with them and talks with them the whole day. And yet they never recognize him. And then at the end of their journey, there's this little throwaway line in, in Luke's gospel, chapter, chapter 24. It says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, is this just a charade? Is Jesus just playing at something? Is he really going to walk on? I mean, having just spent the whole day walking with these two disciples and yet they don't recognize him, was he really going to allow them to miss him in this moment? 
Really? The truth is that Jesus seems to do this pretty often, actually. Continually content to carry on and let people in his midst miss him if they want to. I mean, remember that time that Jesus walked on the water? It says, shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. Or when he restored Peter on the beach in, in, in the end of John's gospel, he says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. In fact, John opens his whole gospel with the statement, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, the earth is ablaze with the fire of God, but only those who see it take their shoes off. See, this entire theme of missing God right in the present moment, right in the ordinary stuff of life, it just gets us all the way back to where we started, right? What are you doing here, Elijah? And then God listens as Elijah recounts his story with a lie, a fear-driven distortion of reality woven right into the middle of it. And God doesn't correct them, doesn't correct the mistake. He does something better. He reveals his presence right in that present moment of Elijah's fear. It says, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. That should sound familiar because it is the same phrase attributed to Jesus walking on the water in Mark's gospel, passing by his disciples when they were in another moment of fear. When fear has grown bigger than promise, yet God reveals himself the way he always does, where he seems willing to allow Elijah to miss him if Elijah wants to really insist on it. And then, look, at, look back at our text one last time. Let me continue reading from right where we were. He says, then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. God, who couldn't be found in all of the noise and power and spectacle, was heard in the gentle whisper, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah tells the same story over again, verbatim, word for word, even with the lie woven in, I'm the only one left. He's afraid, and fear has to do with sight. Yet God has shown up in his fear, stood right next to his fear, right next to his deception to reveal reality. The fear of the Lord, the reason that we're repeatedly instructed by the scriptures to fear the Lord is because every other fear distorts reality, but the fear of the Lord allows us to see clearly. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came so that I can wake up your memory, so that I can drag your past into your present and then send you into a living future. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah remembers. He recounts the facts to God, right? He, those facts are just the information, though, that's stored up in his head. And, and God needs to get this out of his head and down into his heart and down into his emotions, down into his bones, right? So he says, no, 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 don't just tell me the facts. Go back the way you came. Walk past those milestones. Walk past those markers that show you and remind you of all the ways that I've shown up in your life. Walk past the altar where I sent down fire from heaven. Walk past the mountain where you prayed for the downpour of the rain in the city. Walk past so that you can remember who I am, remember who you are, and then go into a truer future. 
So what is God's instruction to us when we get stuck? When we lose the plot of our own redemption story? When fear maybe has grown bigger than promise, at least for a moment? Go back the way you came, friends. Walk back past the moments in your story that will allow you to recover God's true identity and your truest identity. And and what happens then? We can perceive Him in our present moment, even in the place of our fear, at the mouth of the cave, coming to us as gentle as a whisper. And so these two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, I mean, they're with Jesus all day and they have no idea it's Him. And Jesus is about to keep going to, to tragic, tragically just let them miss him right there in their midst. And they talk him somehow into sticking around for a bite to eat. And then finally, it says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. You see, it was there at gratitude prayer in the evening. It was there that they recognized Jesus. And suddenly the path that they had walked with him all day was lit up with God's presence that they had missed all along the way. And they've been brought so alive by the wonder of all of this that they don't just stay there at the table. They retrace every step all the way back to Jerusalem, picking up these moments with God that were littered right into the ordinary everyday events of their lives until they get back to Jerusalem and tell everyone else about the God who has come this close to be with them. And so this week's practice, friends, is to continue living into this daily rhythm of prayer. In the morning, pray the Lord's Prayer. At lunchtime, pray for the lost. Stop and pause it. In the evening, pray gratitude. Let's pray gratitude. Let's begin to pick up the pieces of God's presence all throughout the day until we begin to build a future on promise and know His presence in the midst of our ordinary moments. It's what the saints used to have used to call friendship with Jesus or practicing the presence of Jesus. So here's where I'd suggest you start. Maybe pick a time. And honestly, I'd suggest you repurpose some type of ritual that already exists in your evening. Maybe it's on your commute home from work where instead of popping in the AirPods and clicking on a podcast or listening to music or, or when you jump in the car, instead of turning on the radio, use that as your chance to replay the day with the Lord in grateful prayer. Maybe, it's a, maybe you can turn it into a family ritual you do around the dinner table together where you all share in it together and you, you review your day collectively with the family and you share those things and you pray. Maybe, maybe it could be while you're brushing your teeth. Hopefully you'll do that each night, right? That could be something you repurpose and you go, here's a couple of minutes where I just replay the day and remember and thank God for it. Maybe it's when your head first hits the pillow and you just take those first few moments to replay the day. See, pick a time and review the day with God, looking back down the path of your day. And at every possible point you can, just say, Dainu, Dainu, Dainu. It would have been enough. But thank you, God, for overdoing it. Remember, we've got the tools to help you. There's the, there's the booklet and the bookmark on the table on the way out. And, and there's the, prayer, the inner room prayer, uh, the app, you know, the inner room app that we've talked about the last couple of weeks. And come along tonight. Here's, here's your first one. It's built in, you know, built in accountability to come along tonight, seven o'clock, pray gratitude at Pray First this evening. I, and look, look, let me be honest. You know, I began this, this, this morning talking about this is a prayer rhythm that I still am inconsistent in and learning. It's one that actually I, I find having a resource or a tool actually quite helpful for because 
It's in the evening when my mind is tired and weary that I find it difficult to guide myself through the movements of prayer. So to have a tool or a resource to help support that is really helpful for me. So I encourage you, practice this in your life groups throughout the week or whatever your discipleship community looks like this week. Use it there. And, and at the close of all his letters, you know, Frank Larbach, he offers guidance. He says this, he says, the results of this prayer rhythm begin to show clearly in a month. They grow rich after six months and glorious after 10 years. In other words, this is a long race, but it's worth it. And we need to go alone, but we also need to go together because if you want to go far, go together. Remember, we need each other. So I remember I was telling you at the beginning of that Christmas celebration last year with my family over in Queensland when everyone was scratchy and tired and kind of excited and energized all at the same time. And you know, that's a mix that never goes down well. And so my nephews are arguing and fighting and my, you know, my brothers and I just push back from it all. And I reflect and I just say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. That moment in my brother's backyard on the outskirts of Brisbane became a holy moment for me because the presence of God was made available in a common place at a common time. And I discovered paradise, the paradise of Paul in that Philippian jail cell, the paradise that John found on the island of Patmos, the paradise of Jesus on the mountain and among the crowds, the paradise that came and found Elijah in a cave in the wilderness, that paradise, some bit of it anyway, showed up at my brother's average house on the outskirts of Brisbane last Christmas. Because when we can see, we can make the greatest of discoveries that God is as present and available in the ordinary moments of our lives, just as He is present in those special moments where we are pursuing Him and seeking Him in times of gathered worship and things like that. When we pray gratitude, we cultivate this habit of interruptibility with God, which then joyously intrudes into our ordinary lives, into all the places where we didn't know that He would be, only to be delighted when we find Him there evening prayers of gratitude that's where we learn to notice him that's where we learn to see and so lord i do pray that you would show yourself to us that you would by your grace and through your the power of your holy spirit reset any distorted lies fear oriented patterns maybe that have distorted and warped our perception of truth and reality god may we see clearly lord as we as we be put this practice into into play that we would pray gratitude at the end of each day in the evening lord would it be one that just feels so much joy uh in, in our hearts would it would it rise faith and confidence in your goodness and trusting you for the future and in all of it lord would you be shaping us more and more to live life finding you and your kingdom breaking in in moments all along the way. We pray this in Jesus' name. And we all said together, amen.